What's the most valuable musical instrument, and how much is it worth? And what famous song most people think was a spiritual was actually written by two Jewish songwriters? Answers to those and other questions, plus an interview with Victor Borga, coming up in this edition of The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. Welcome to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. Today our topic is music, and we'll be giving you some great trivia about that. Also, a little later on, we'll be hearing from one of the brightest lights ever to hit the musical stage. A man who could play the most beautiful classical music, but also knew how to have fun with music. Delighting audiences with jokes and stories in a language other than his native tongue. But before we get to that, here's my partner, Marcia Druin-Smith. And some music trivia. We got some great questions here, Marsh. Let the, the audience be the judge of that. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> well, here's mine. What's the most valuable musical instrument? Monetarily? Yeah, monetarily. Not not sentimentally. In fact, if I had one of these, my sentiment would go out the window. <laughs> oh. Well, there's only one instrument I know about that's very expensive. Uh a Stradivarius violin. The Stradivarius, yes. And really? Yeah, right. <laughs> In 2011, the Lady Blunt Stradivarius sold for a world's record. It was four times the previous auction record for a Stradivarius. How much was it? I have uh, $6 million. $15.9 oh, million. Lord. Lord, Lord. I would part with that in a minute. It was first sold in 1971 publicly for $115,000. So 50 years later... Amazing, huh? Wow. I got one for you. Okay. All right. Three persons wrote a song that I really like. It's called What a Wonderful World. Okay, yeah. One of those writers became a major musical figure of the 1960s. In terms of his own group and his record company, who was that person? What a Wonderful World. And uh, Jimmy Durante did that and a number of other people. uh, The one I know is Satchmo. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. That's Louis right. Louis Armstrong sang it. Okay, who? Herb Elpert, if you can believe it. Really? <laughs> yeah. He wrote the song with Barbara Campbell and Lou Adler. Herb Elpert went on, uh, as you know, to Tijuana Brass. You would know that. Lou Adler went on to form uh, no, a- it, A&M Records, I believe. He was a big producer. Right. It says O-D-E. Oh, O-D- oh yes, right. O-D- yes, he did have O'D Records. That's right. Which recorded right. such top artists as Carole King, Carol King. etc. in the 1970s. Okay. Well, that's a good one. Yeah. Okay, you got one for me? Yeah, I think so. Let's go country now. What country music star once worked as an electrical appliance salesman singing after hours? He sold sold electrical appliances. (laughs) Oh, golly. Well, I don't know that many country western singers, so I'll just say Garth Brooks. Well, that's a good one. This guy goes back even farther, and almost everybody knows him. Johnny Cash. Oh, really? He found he, lots of work as a singer while he was in the Air Force. The man in black sold black refrigerators. Well, I don't know if they were black at the time. <laughs> he was in the Air Force. That's when he uh, started singing. 
He couldn't find work after he got back home as a musician, so he went to work selling electrical appliances, singing after working hours. And then finally, in 1954, he formed a group called Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Two. (laughs) And then he got an audition at Sun Records, and the rest was history. Hmm. Very interesting. In the early 60s, Bob, Carole King wrote songs for such American artists as the Shirelles, Bobby V, Little Eva... But in 1964, she helped the British invasion by writing the first hit for a popular British group. Uh, And this wasn't in the musical we saw recently, Beautiful, uh, Carol King's Life. But see if you can answer this. uh, I think it's Herman's Hermits. And I think it's I'm Into Something Good. Well, you think right. (laughs) 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 Well, that's it. Uh, So Carol King wrote that uh, so he here's something interesting somebody wrote. Hits. Charlie Mingus, the legendary jazz musician, he once wrote an essay, a how-to essay, on teaching cats to use the toilet. Just a little fact I thought I'd throw out there. <laughs> That's a music factoid by Bob Smith. I got another one here. All right. Adolf Hitler loved Irish music. So much so, he invited an Irish musician to play for him in Berlin in 1936. Oh, God. Can you see him doing the Irish jig or the... You know, those little Irish dancer dances? Oh, my. Well, can you imagine seeing this? There was no room for the musician to sit down, so Hitler ordered an SS member on his hands and knees oh. to act as a chair. Oh, for goodness so, sakes. So the oh Irishman could perform his music. All right. Oh, that's crazy. All right. Here's an amusement. What mid-1960s rock and roll singer was a film stuntman before he fronted a popular band? A stuntman. Mm-hmm. Mid-60s rock and roll. Uh, the stuntman. Man, I don't know. Well, you wouldn't have guessed this. Okay. Obviously, you didn't. The answer? Dave Clark of the Dave Clark Five. Hmm. The British group. All the band members had regular jobs. But Dave Clark, he was a stuntman. And their big break came when they received an invitation to play at the annual Buckingham Palace Staff Ball. Not to confuse with the... With the big time ball in the other room <laughs> when Queenie comes out. But, uh, okay, that's, that's it for Dave Clark. Speaking of previous jobs, <laughs> uh, Jimi Hendrix and James Brown were both backing musicians for what early rock and roll star? Well, Jimi Hendrix and James Brown, early rock and roll star, golly. And all the ones I can think came after well, here's the answer. Okay. Little Richard. Okay. They were both backing musicians for Little Richard early in their careers, Jimi Hendrix and James Brown. And when Little Richard couldn't make some shows because of a scheduling conflict, James Brown would actually fill in and impersonate Little oh, Richard. Oh, really? Oh, that's cool. <laughs> um, here's another one. Michael Jackson composed songs, but what didn't he do? He didn't sing them. It was all lip sync. No, 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 his no. Brother Tito. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. He couldn't play any instruments. Or at least he didn't play any instruments. Yeah. Well, he was busy with his feet. He would build each element of a track with his voice wow. so pitch perfect that studio musicians could match chords to his singing. That's fascinating. Huh. I never thought of Michael Jackson as not playing an instrument, but he never did, apparently, in yeah. any of his songs. Well, he had enough going on. Apparently. Okay, any other interesting facts there? The famous old song, Old Man River, 
was actually written by a pair of white Jewish songwriters. What? <laughs> what? Old Man River was written by some Jewish songwriters? Yeah, well, many things were <laughs> and still are. Oscar Hammerstein and Jerome Kern penned the song. I thought that was a old spiritual. So did I. Okay, wow. we're both wrong. Okay. Okay. What famous song that we associate with the American Revolution was actually written by a British songwriter. <laughs> well, there aren't that many, so you oh, should guess. Associate with the American Revolution. Well, that would be Yankee Doodle. Yankee Doodle, right? That's it. But the words were written by a British surgeon, Dr. Richard Schuckberg. The music comes from a traditional folk tune. The term macaroni was a term used for an English fop. You know what a fop is? I think it's a dandy kind of a guy. Yes, a fop is foppish. <laughs> uh, dandy. Yes, it's a dandy. Okay, in the late 1970s, the Eagles were a very famous country rock group. They and still are famous, I think. They had a song entitled We Wish You Peace on one of their albums. Bertie Leiden of the Eagles wrote the song with his girlfriend at the time. His girlfriend has a very famous father who helped Bernie Leiden write the song Wish You Peace. <laughs> well, you who, lost who, me there. Who Bob. was his girlfriend? She helped write the song. Patty Davis, Ronald Reagan's daughter. <laughs> yeah. Oh, come on. Bob, do you remember uh, They Call Me Mellow Yellow? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, that was Donovan. Correct. Back in the 60s. And remember the subtext in it? Quite right. Yes, quite, quite rightly. They call it mellow, yeah, quite rightly. Well, who do you think whispered that? I know Paul McCartney was on some of his really? some of his records, and he was on some of Paul McCartney stuff too. I did know that, but yes, that's the answer. Is Paul that McCartney, who it was? Yes, Paul McCartney saying quite rightly. Yes, yes. No kidding. Okay. They call me mellow yellow, quite rightly. They call me mellow yellow, quite rightly. They call me mellow yellow. All right, Bob, this is called Name the Artist. Okay, Name the Artist. At one point, this person was the only artist who had hit number one nationally as a solo artist, a member of a duo, and a member of a trio. Is this a male or female? Female. Could it be somebody like Stevie Nicks of Fleetwood Mac? Ah, good guess, no. Oh, <laughs> okay, who was it? Diana Ross. Her solo career spanned the 70s and 80s. And her career as a singer in a trio was during the 60s when she was a lead singer for, of course, the Supremes. Yes, yes. Her first number one hit as part of a duo was Endless Love with Lionel Richie. Remember oh, that's that? that's right. Yes, yes. That was a very nice song in 81. So there you have it. And she, then she sang with the Supremes, uh, Lionel Richie, and All By Yourself. Well, so she broke a lot of records. You know, speaking of that, think of some of the artists breaking records today like Drake, the rapper, he has had an amazing career. In May of 2018, he broke a record the Beatles had uh, for 51 years. He charted 14 songs simultaneously on the Billboard Hot 100, and that equaled the 14 titles that the Beatles placed on the Hot 100 way back in 1964. And then in October of 2018, he scored his 12th Billboard Hot 100, which passed the Beatles for the most in a single year. They had 11, 11 top 10s on the Hot 100 in their breakout year. The Amazing Victor Borga. 
what what can you say about him? This was a classy, classy guy. He was a concert-trained pianist, a very, very uh, well-known uh, act, and had been a child prodigy. Uh, but the thing that was most remarkable about him was, was the way he took the English language, which was his borrowed tongue, and could just uh, play with it, play with all the similes, metaphors, and so forth and so on. And that was fascinating. And he did a terrific show in Dubuque. And then when we went backstage afterwards, a Telegraph Herald reporter and I interviewed him. And uh, he apparently was, he was just sort of lying in wait for some of the phrases that came out of our mouths. And me particularly, he turned all these catchphrases and turns of phrase on me and, uh, and it made it very funny. So this was recorded in his dressing room. This is Victor Borga. Victor Borga is a very funny music man. He does things many musicians just wouldn't think of doing. He pokes fun at opera singers. He displays wit and irreverence to classical music. If time permits, I would like to squeeze in the minute walls by Chopin. And he knows how to handle interruptions and hecklers in a way that adds to a show rather than detracts from it. What did you say? Do that again? You buy another ticket? He has been a hit on the American scene for more than 40 years. Victor Borga was a musical prodigy born into the family of a symphony orchestra musician in Copenhagen, Denmark. And if you ask him today what led him to make serious music with comedy, he'll stop you cold. Who says it's comedy? How come you, you laugh at it? That doesn't make it comedy. It's very true. I tell you the story of my family. I tell you everything I tell you is fact. That just, that they seem to be funny, that's another story. I don't tell stories, I don't make up jokes or things. But the truth is, Victor Borgat does tell jokes in his show, like this one about his grandfather. He was a strange personality. He always experimented with something. Once he, um, he crossed an Idaho potato with a sponge. <laughs> Imagine that silly idea. It tasted horrible but it sure held a lot of gravy. Where did that ability come from? Well, he says it began when he was just a youngster. I didn't decide to do it. It was a natural development, and, and, and uh, I was almost forced to do it because people always invited me, and after dinner I had to do something, and uh, it's not always people just like to sit and listen to Beethoven or Chopin. It's not uh, uh, necessarily a... a orthodox audience you are confronted with as a child, you know. So I had this ability to entertain and make, and I still have it, and I guess that's what it is. But it's based on music, which is the only thing I really know anything about. Did you ever meet any resistance from classical music lovers because you made, a, made light of them? Only when the piano burned once in a while. <laughs> no, to the contrary. No, no. My best audience is... is, is uh, the musicians, actually, themselves. And you can name them, uh, anybody who, uh, whom I have met from the Gunnar Johansson, the Heifetz, the Rachmaninoff, anybody. And they were sitting there dying, laughing, and, uh, <laughs> with their head buried in their handkerchiefs. Victor Borga came to America in 1940, and like millions of his fellow Europeans, he was fleeing Adolf Hitler. But now he can even look back on that with a sense of humor. Yes, because there was not room enough for both of us where he was. <laughs> so here I came. 
He achieved his first American notoriety on Bing Crosby's radio program, The Craft Music Hall, in 1940, where he did a guest shot one week and was so successful he was asked back the next and the next until he had played 56 weeks on The Craft Music Hall. For his radio appearances, Borga was named the Comedy Find of the Year in 1940. Even so, he said he found acting and performing without an audience seeing him a little bit odd. Well, it was very strange because I never thought of radio. I think I should be seen. That's why I couldn't understand the radio. But that was an extra added attraction that, that saved me for a long wait, I guess. In a few years, he was seen by millions as he began popping up on early American television shows. He started a one-man show on Broadway in the 1950s, and success followed success. In the years since, he's been honored by countries all over the world, his own country, and three times by the Congress of the country he officially adopted in 1948. Today, Victor Borga lives in Connecticut, but he is truly a world citizen, and his travels take him around the globe. His show is a rich mixture of humor, clever departures from serious pieces, and straight performances of the classics. One trick Borga uses to lighten things up is to play a piece of sheet music upside down, unbeknownst to the audience. That's what it says. It's not easy being a comedian, and it's almost unheard of to be a comedian in a foreign language, but Victor Borga is that. He can see humor in many of the words that we English-speaking people can take for granted. In his performance, Borga's son, acting as a stagehand, was asked what he did at the auditorium. I run the lights, he said. You run the lights, repeated Borga. How far? Throughout his career, that type of humor has been a hallmark of his style. You have such a way of, uh, you can point out the idiosyncrasies of the language that Americans take for granted until you point them out. Well, I think it's like harmony in music. You, you hear, I have learned grammar in school, but I never spoke English. I mean, one thing is to learn the basic grammar in, in the language, and another thing is to speak it. I couldn't understand a word of English when I came up was spoken, in spite of the fact that I had quite a glossary. I, uh, I knew there was a table, a chair, a table, a girl, man, woman, you know, but it never but put together, you see. And uh, I listened, and I still listen to every word in the sentence, whereas you speak in phrases, I listen to words. So it, it's a very simple, uh, it's a very simple uh, analysis, really. And if you're not careful, he can catch you using some of those same phrases. You've done radio, you've done TV, you've done Broadway shows. Uh, do you enjoy live performances better? I've never performed, but I was dead, so I don't know it. <laughs> Another strength of Victor Borga's style is his ability to weave into his performance any incidents or mishaps that might befuddle any other musician. In his debut performance, semis on the truck route outside of the Civic Center created occasional and annoying noise. And Borga would pause in his performance, listen to them, and joke as if only one truck was continually circling the building. He was asked later if that really was a problem for him. Seriously, did the truck bother you much tonight? Yes. That of course, it all bothers me. It's my show. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is a... I have learned long time ago to incorporate anything that happens 
so that it becomes part of the show. We have had flies landing on my nose while I was playing, and people have asked me, how do you train a fly to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and you say it's comedy. I mean, it has happened. I've seen pianists very seriously, accompanies with the flies open, you know, and they didn't know it, and people sitting there listening, and look at it. the guy sitting there not knowing. <laughs> and, and this is exactly what I, what I try to bring to the attention of the people, that no matter how much they can do, no matter how serious they attempt to perform, there still are such ridiculous things that happen. And I just prove it by, by doing things that really happen. Not all at the same time. <laughs> We've heard performers talk about a bad audience. Is there such a thing? No, there's no such thing as a bad audience. Because well, there could be a bad performance, or there could be a, a, a performance in which audiences cannot hear well, or see well, or it's too cold, or the conditions can be bad. But you cannot have 500, I don't know how many people there were tonight, about three, four thousand. Between three and four, yeah. All right. You cannot have three or four thousand people buying tickets in order to be a bad audience. It's impossible, you know. They come to be a good audience, come to be enjoy, to enjoy, see. And uh, when they get what they expect, then they're happy. And that's what they come to see. It's like in a restaurant, you don't go in to, to, to buy bad food. But you go to a good restaurant because you expect good food and you get it, you are happy, and they are happy to deliver it. Same thing here, they, they <coughs> expect to hear a certain quality and certain uh, in, uh, form for entertainment, uh, which they are looking forward to while they buy the ticket. And does he care whether the audience comes to see the music or to see the comedy? No, I don't. As long as they are there, I think it's, <laughs> it's that what, what counts, isn't it? When I do a concert with a symphony orchestra, I, I divide it into both classical and, and, and kind of show people in the audience that they can have, they can have a lot of fun with music. In other words, all the fun the musicians have when they get together, I just bring it on the stage, that's all. Then there is no profession that has better stories or more hilarious incidents than the musical profession. But it's never told on the stage. You can find some in books, but uh, this is exactly what I'm doing. I'm just drawing out from the experiences that, uh, and, and bringing it to the, to the stage. A man at the top of the music world for over 40 years. A man who plays the classics with finesse. A man who knows how to handle an audience or a heckler. I think it is to your left. <laughs> the man who says he never rehearses, that's Victor Borga. This is Bob Smith. The amazing Victor Borga. I have such fond memories of that evening. What a great concert it was with just some of the most beautiful, tasteful, wonderful music and terrific, hilarious jokes. Uh, plus, Victor Borga was such a delightful host in his dressing room there. One last routine of Victor Borga. He did this at one point in nearly every concert. It's called punctuation. I'll let him explain it. Then, in 1940, I luckily arrived in the United States, unable to speak a word of English, of course, which was a handicap because I found most people over here do. <laughs> and I tried to learn the language, and I got along as time and a half went by, and I picked up a few words here and there, mostly there because I hadn't been here yet. I found that people who speak English sometimes do not understand each other too well due to the fact that they do not use punctuation marks when they talk. 
And that... Thank you. That is why I invented phonetic punctuation, which means that while we talk, we will integrate punctuation marks by giving them sounds so that we can underline our sentences as well when we speak as we do when we read and or write. <laughs> I'll teach you the system. A period sounds like this. Here is a dash. An exclamation point is a vertical dash with a period underneath. Here is a comma. Quotation are two commas. If you happen to be left-handed. Question mark is rather difficult. Finally, the colon. The two little dots, you know, you put them either over or under each other. That is a sound for the colon. I have a book here, and I'm going to read to you a short story so you can hear how this system really sounds. This book was written by Shakespeare this time. <laughs> Johann Sebastian Shakespeare. This is a pickpocket edition, by the way. I have a short story right here in the beginning of the book. It is in page two. <laughs> in the open window, there suddenly came light. Beautiful Eleanor sat alone, dreaming of but one thing. <laughs> two years had passed since she met Sir Henry. She could still remember the unhappy evening when her father had thrown him out. They had been sitting in the park and Henry had said, Darling! Is this the first time you have loved? <laughs> she answered, yes. <laughs> but it is so wonderful that I hope it will not be the last. <laughs> it's getting a little messy. Suddenly she heard a well-known sound. It was he. In two strides he was near her, embraced, kissed, and caressed her. Henry!
What is love? She asked. He answered, Well, I couldn't live without it. He asked, I'm sorry, where have all your thoughts been this while? He answered, with thee, my maiden. Suddenly he was gone. All she hoid heard. was the well-known sound of his departing horse. Victor Borga, a different kind of musician. Well, that's it. Time to leave the off-ramp and get back on the highway and the fast lane of life. This is Bob Smith. We hope you've enjoyed our fun facts about music and the laughs we've shared with the late, great Victor Borga. And we hope you join us again next time for more fun here on The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin.